0: Good morning that was a lively lively lesson (laughs) all right well I made a a promise up here uh, some months ago that in the future when big events happen in the world I would be more responsive more pastoral and and leading and uh, and here we have had it right last Wednesday momentous and historic events have taken place and yet this message that I've written was completed on November the 8th. I didn't even know the results of the election, much less that the events of last Wednesday would transpire. And as I practiced it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and then Wednesday happened, by Thursday I knew I don't have to change one word of this. The word of God has already addressed it. So what you'll hear, other than what's spawned by your questions, is exactly as it would have been. And let that be a testament to the power of God's word and the power of the revelation to see events that happen and to teach us how to live and how to respond. What we need for the past, the present, and the future is here, is here. So this series was spawned by your questions. So I thought, let's keep that going. So you'll have an opportunity to send questions up here during the message. If you'd like to do that, um, I encourage you to take out your phone, whether you're on live stream or here in the house, and text the word MDirector057, text that little phrase to the number 22333. What that does is that opens up a session, and then anything else you text to 22333 has a chance to appear on this screen. Now, it goes first to Luke, because we correctly predicted last week that if we just left it open, my son would text up distracting questions. Which he did do. And Luke intercepted them. So I um, just got a little family matter, but you got to send them to Luke first. All right, so M Director 057, uh, text that to 22333. And then after that, anything you text to 22333 has a chance of, of winding up up here. No one needs to f- fill in my son's role, uh, it's covered, okay? All right. So the question I want to ask you first is, uh, I'm going to give you a big list here. What do all of these guys and one girl, what do all of these guys and one girl have in common? Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Mikhail Gorbachev, Pope John Paul II, Saddam Hussein, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Oprah Winfrey, Marilyn Manson, Osama Bin Laden, Barack Obama, Donald Trump and Bill Gates, what do they all have in common? Marilyn Manson's a leader of a strange little group, yes. Don't get me wrong, I I have some of the songs on my computer. Um, They've all been accused in my lifetime of being the Antichrist. All these individuals have been accused in my lifetime of being the Antichrist. Now, of course, folks older than me know that's silly, that silly, that none of those folks could be the Antichrist, because of course the Antichrist was John F. Kennedy, or Adolf Hitler, or Napoleon Bonaparte, or all the popes of the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, or the Emperor Nero of Rome, who reigned in the 60s. Not the 1960s, just the 60s, when that's all, there, it was just the 60s. Every generation has put a lot of energy into identifying and accusing an Antichrist. So our question this morning is, who is the Antichrist? So we turn to Revelation this morning to learn what we can about the Antichrist, and we find nothing. The concept of the Antichrist does not occur in Revelation. So if you ever have someone teach you Revelation and the Antichrist, you can go ahead and cross that person off the list as someone to pay attention to. Um, The Antichrist is not taught in Revelation. So, to answer your question, I actually have to dip back to the only two books which do include messages about the Antichrist, and that is First and Second John. First and Second John. Uh, there's only four verses, so I'm able to show them all to you. Here's the first. Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. Well, that tells us a lot right there. Here's someone writing in the first century who says it's the end times. The Antichrist is here. And, shocking to us maybe, there's already been a bunch of them by the first century. That's not a famous one figure. Hmm, let's keep reading. What is this? From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged to us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. So these Antichrists are church people. Not famous political leaders. Fascinating. This comes up later in chapter 2. And who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. There are two other verses. I'll put the reference up there. But they just say the same thing these two said. So it's not a famous uh, political figure, interestingly. It's uh, church people. Church people church teachers actually this fits best the description of the denomination that i grew up in there were a lot of pastors in that denomination who did not believe that jesus was the son of god they did not believe he had risen from the dead and they uh, did not believe the bible was the word of god ironic that they chose pastor as a profession but there they were antichrists and it fits with this description Now, there is in the Bible a famous global figure who leads the world astray. And that's what you really meaning to ask about. And that is in Revelation. It's in Revelation chapter 17. So let's turn the page on the Antichrist and go to probably what you meant to ask about. The colorfully named great prostitute called Babylon. Or in other generations, the whore of Babylon. And here she is described. Chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bulls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her. And the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns and blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. She had a huge forehead. <laughs> I could see that she was drunk of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. The great prostitute of Babylon riding on the, the uh, 10 horned beast, that, that's what you wanted to ask about. So this is the beast and the great prostitute, a trashy but wealthy figure who rides on a beast with ten horns, has the allegiance of seven, and then later it says eight kings, is drunk on the blood of God's people. First century readers, the first folks probably in the mid-90s who would receive just the plain old 90s, who would have received uh, this letter from John, would have read that description and immediately said, that's Rome. Rome. No question, that's Rome. She's rich. She's sexually naughty and worships other gods. All the kings on earth serve her. Remember that seven is the number of wholeness and perfection. So if you're served by seven kings, you're served by all of them. And and then it says, and an eighth. Like, all of them and more. She has total authority. Horns are a symbol of authority. And ten is often what the Bible says when it wants to say all the nations. She's killed so many Christians, she's drunk on their blood. Now the first readers who read this were also getting a promise. They were getting a promise that God was going to judge this great prostitute who rides around on a beast and they would both fall. Now that is quite an amazing prophecy because John, who's writing this, is living in exile on a prison island, probably a labor camp. And he has the audacity to say, God's going to destroy these people who think they can keep me in a prison camp. Rome is at the height of their power when he writes this. They rule North Africa. They rule the Middle East. They rule Mediterranean Europe. They're getting into Northern Europe. They've made it to the British Isles. Folks back then were calling it the eternal city, the city that will rule forever. And John, this little, I imagine, skinny guy living in a prison camp says, God's going to take it all down. But this is a prophecy and it remains in the Bible because it came true. Today, Rome, Italy exists, but it's got, you know, 2.9 million people. It's a nice vacation spot. It is not a global superpower that runs the world. So God's word is true. Now, what I want to do next is ask, how do folks who are reading Revelation after the Roman Empire, what do we get from this? Before I do that, let's see what questions that you have. What are the seven spirits of God and who has them and why do we need to know this? Okay, someone has been reading a different part of Revelation to get the seven spirits of God, I think, from chapter uh, one, I think. So um, that seven spirits of God in Revelation is a direct quote from, I believe, the prophet Zechariah. And, and, and so what that represents in the Old Testament version is, is the complete spirit of God gone out to all the people. And so it's really a picture in Revelation of the Holy Spirit and its completeness and its wholeness in the seven. So it's not like there's seven individual spirits and you have to have, you know, I've only collected five. I need to go by Hardee's and pick up the other two. It's not, it's not like that. Um, it's, a, it's a picture from the Old Testament of God's spirit going out of the temple and into the world. I hope that helps. Um, and if I didn't get that quite right, it's because I didn't come here, studied, prepared to answer that chapter. But I'm going on memory and I think I did that one all right. Should we not believe these are the end times because time and time again this has been said and hasn't God prevailed every time? Well, okay, Uh, let's talk about end times in Christian theology. In Christian theology, these are the end times. The end times begin when Christ rises from the dead and ascends to heaven. Now, God's plan is completely revealed God's invitation is completely open and the way for us to be forgiven of our sin is completely laid out. And so now begins the time when God's invitation goes beyond Israel to the whole world. And we, the church, are his mission to invite everyone into that. And that's what what makes it the end times. Now, if you mean, is it the very end times? Like we're one generation away from it. We can't know that. And, And even Jesus said, The father had not revealed that to him. And if if the father did not reveal it to his own son, he sure as heck didn't reveal it to some Missouri preacher. So um, like my dad said, I shared this last week. My my dad said, look, son, you could step off the curb tomorrow and be hit by the school bus, and that'd be the end of the world for you, wouldn't it? So we're all, isn't that nice? (laughs) So we're all living in our own very end times in which we serve Christ and accept him. And whether whether I have great-great-grandchildren or not, I got to pass on the faith. I would love it if Jesus would come back in about five minutes, but um, may happen, may not. But be ready, be ready. I hope that answers the question. Is the great prostitute still alive and thriving to this day? Okay, we're going to go there. Other theologians have said that America will not be part of the last war. After this week's issues, do you think that is because we will destroy ourselves? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay, we're going to keep going with the message because I think it will come around to that question. Thank you to whoever asked that. That's an important question, and I hear your uh, I hear your heart in there. So, what should other readers like us do with Revelation? Well, let's remember that when John talked about Antichrist, which is a little different, but he said there have been many, there's one now, he kind of implies there's going to be others. Revelation says the beast rises, the beast falls and goes back into the sea, the beast rises again later in the chapter. Jesus said evil must increase in this world. But he said, take heart, these are only the birth pangs of a new creation. Now when you think of birth pangs, You think of this intense wave of agony that comes upon someone, and then it subsides. But then it comes back again, and it subsides. And where is it all headed? To a baby. At the end of all that, there's a baby. Jesus says, this world is like that. There'll be these intense periods of agony and anguish You're as close to death as you could ever be, and it will subside, and then it will come back again, and then it will subside. You wonder where is this headed? He says it's headed toward Christ's kingdom and His new creation. Let these not be signs of discouragement to you, but signs that God's kingdom is one wave closer. With every wave of agony we suffer, so Revelation says to us, there will be other global superpowers who are rich, who are sexually naughty and chase after other gods who are served by many world leaders, that's the seven kings, who have total authority to make what they want to happen, happen, that's the ten horns, who have killed many Christians. There have been others since Rome, there will be others. But the revelation gives Christians in every age a warning and an encouragement. And this is where you really want to lean in. Here's the warning. If you live in a time of the great prostitute, don't follow her. Don't imitate her violence. Don't take part in her schemes of uh, wealth and obscene, obscenity and immorality. Stand back from her. That's the warning. And the encouragement is she won't last forever. She'll fall. She'll fall. She seems really powerful and unbeatable and protected by this beast she rides around on, but it won't last. And here's the, Greatest irony of it all, God does not destroy the great prostitute. The people of God don't rise up in an armed insurrection and destroy the great prostitute. The beast she rides on destroys her evil destroys itself we've preached that so many times these last few years here it is revelation 17:16 the scarlet beast and his 10 horns all hate the prostitute they will strip her naked eat her flesh and burn her remains with fire if you stand with Christ you will be there at the moment when you see evil eat itself all good things are revealed If they are good, all evil things are revealed if they're evil. Did we not just see this? We were at a moment when a power was about to be extended. But then went too far. Character was revealed. And by the middle of the night. The beast that the whore rode on turned and ate her. So stand with Christ in the face of the prostitute. Don't join her. Don't imitate her violence. Proclaim Christ even in her face. Keep loving your enemies. Some of them will turn. Keep loving your enemies. Some of them will turn. And you will be standing and you will see when the beast devours his own instrument. Is the church destroying itself with political infighting? Yes. Yes. Yes, we have to be instruments of redemption. We have to begin right here, right here. In 1982, if you asked people, do you think badly of someone just because they are a Democrat or just because they are a Republican, Uh, 15 to 19% of Americans said, yes, I think badly of people just because of that. Two years ago, they asked the same question. It was between 54 and 58%. So it's got to begin right here. It's not okay to hate and demonize someone, to label them unforgivable. So is it wrong to be doing well for ourselves? No, no. But remember, Rome and the whore of Babylon didn't just do well for themselves. They oppressed others to get well and to stay well. They built uh, that wealth on the backs of people who weren't doing well. They had to defend that by holding others down. Remember, two thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves. Are we the societal? Are we? I should read these to myself before I read them out loud, because then I'm committed. But oh well. Uh, are we? Are we the societal Americans, the beast that she rides on? Are Americans as drunk on the blood of others? How does Christ say we should pursue? Sobriety, there it is. That's the main question to ask. Thank you to whoever asked that. That's, that's what we're here to ask. Every Christian should ask themselves that. Not just American Christians. Chinese Christians should ask, is China the great Whore that rides on the beast. Russian Christians should ask, is Russia the great whore who rides on the beast? European Christians should ask themselves that through all time. This is what revelation is for. is to show us what evil looks like so that we can look at ourselves and the place we're making the earth into and say, we're making it too much like this. That's a great use. Thank you for that question. So let's ask. Let's ask. Is America rich? Is America sexually naughty? Chasing after other gods? Does America command the obedience of leaders all over the world? The seven kings. Does America have the power to make the things we want to happen happen? Do we have the ten horns? Has America killed many Christians? Are we drunk on their blood? I think we're getting close. Three and a half, four and a half out of five. I think we're pretty close. So this is a time... For us to be the most careful. For us to be the most careful. God bless whoever was brave enough to ask that question because that's the question Revelation 1 should ask. What about Mark of the Beast 666 on a person's right hand and forehead? Um, The... Mark of the Beast is uh, a controversial piece. Uh, here's where I stand. Uh, back then, you could take any person's name, and, and uh, they had uh, a, a number that occurred under every name. In Greek, they don't have numbers. So if you mean one, you just put A, and that is also one. And if you mean B, you put two. So it was a fun thing to like take the letters of your name and add them together, and you'd be like, I'm 543, and you'd put that on the license plate of your chariot or something. Um, <laughs> They did have graves, like there's a grave, like this is my beloved wife whose number was 447. Know, they did that stuff. It was, it was a fun thing. If you take Emperor Nero's name and number it out, it spells 666. It, its number happens to be 666. Now you can do this with a lot of names because you know how numbers and letters work when you start playing these games. But that's one version. One of the things you had to do at that time was worship the emperor, the idea of something being on your hand and your head just means out there in front for, front for everyone to see because there's also a mark of the lamb in Revelation that no one ever talks about. No one ever talks about mark of the lamb. It's also in Revelation. And it says you put it on your hand and forehead, meaning you're not hiding your faith from anyone. And then later it says you also could put a mark on your hand and your forehead saying, I follow and worship the emperor. And you can't hide that from anyone either. So anything that's calling you to publicly denounce Christ and bow down to someone in this world, that's a mark of the beast. Do I have a current example? No, not really. But I'll let you know. I'll sure let you know if it comes up. What does it mean to be drunk on their blood? To have murdered a whole bunch of them. To have murdered a whole bunch of people is to be drunk on their blood in Revelation. Is sexually naughty the same term as immoral? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, in a biblical sense, immoral. I just mean licentious, reaching out there, going well beyond marriage, well beyond, Rome was really into all this stuff, islands full of children that you had sex with, and and just crazy stuff. But I don't want to go too far with the sexual stuff, because the Bible, Old and New Testament, also uses immorality and prostitution as a metaphor for idolatry, like you're committing prostitution with other religions, they often, often God says in the Old Testament, you, know, you were married to me and then you made yourself a prostitute to this other God. So it has to be both. And that's why I keep saying sexually naughty and chasing after other gods because the image is both. Thank you for asking that. What is Mark of the Lamb? It just says that. There's no number or anything like it to that. It just, it's just visible signs that one follows Christ. Probably in their time, refusing to worship the emperor, Uh, Refusing to take part in uh, parties that include drunkenness and prostitution and pagan worship. All this stuff that when you showed up in public Roman life and you did it or you didn't do it, people would go, That's a Christian. Christians never, never do the stuff. I hope that's helpful. Thank you. These are wonderful. So, one of you asked last week, how can I be a witness to what it says in Revelation like the prophets were throughout history? That's a great question. How can we be a witness to what, uh, like the prophets were throughout history? Uh, do what we're doing here today. Uh, open yourself up to let God shine a light inside of you so that you can see who you are and what you are becoming. So I have a friend, uh, Lori Fisk. Who's been on a journey of doing that and, and bravely uh, was agreed to share uh, what she found, what God revealed. So let's welcome Lori.
1: My name is Lori Fisk, and this is my story. When I first moved to Kansas City, I was newly married and deciding where to settle. We chose the small town and -and up-and-coming feel of Lee Summit, where our mentors hosted us, and Lee Summit North was brand new. This was part of the decision I distinctly remember. Where are the good schools? Might as well plan ahead. A few years and three children later, I found myself comfortable enjoying this community, never seriously worrying for their education or their safety. Fast forward to single motherhood and making ends meet. As I prioritized, I was staunchly against moving out of the district. I would not jeopardize their education. I would do anything and everything to maintain my home here. Year after year, I had to look at moving to a different area. But year after year, I found extra work. I was helped by my parents, my Lakeland family, including anonymous donors for back-to-school shopping, Uh, and a small group who volunteered often to help with home repairs. Shout-out to the ringleaders, Scott and Ken, wherever, I mean Ken and Scott, wherever he is. Year after year, we've made it. My oldest is now 20. She is self-supporting and the most tender of souls. My twins are 17, savvy and sweet, juniors who are benefiting from the opportunities at Summit Tech as much as you can during a pandemic. That good school goal from 1996 has led to, soon enough, three high school graduates whose greatest schooling concerns are enduring boring classes, fitting in enough intriguing electives, and choosing that career path. I'm only a few years away from downsizing without consideration of school district. What an accomplishment. What a great feeling. Until... Until the day I heard a phrase that rocked me to my core. Buckle up, because if you're anything like me, you'll understand why I could not process this at first. Surely it did not apply to me when I heard good schools is code for white. I was rocked because I'm not racist. I like black people, I grew up in a mixed neighborhood. My closest family to mine growing up was African American. I'm still close to people of color. I am deeply troubled by overt and covert racism. But also, I was rocked because it's true. When we were choosing where to raise children, we steered away from districts like Raytown, where their dad enjoyed growing up. The district had changed since his graduation. It was going downhill. It was poorer. We never said... More black people live there now, and I never had that specific thought or that conscious thought. I was just being practical. I wanted the very best for my children. But never once did I think about the system within which I was making this choice. Never did I think about other parents, what their schools are like, if all children deserve an education without worry and full of opportunity. Suddenly, sharply, and shockingly, I realized I was a player in a game I say I despise. That I have been a silent cog in the wheel of a system that provides opportunities and safety based on race. Hearing that statement that good schools is code for white was the string that Holy Spirit tugged to start unraveling my blindness. Blindness that came from lazily ignoring inconvenient facts, blindness because there's no need to look when I'm not the one missing out. What I blithely saw as my choice was actually a privilege I didn't consider as anything out of the ordinary, even when life changed and I could not make it happen on my own. As it sank in, I viscerally felt like Oscar Schindler at the end of Schindler's List, Minus the saving, risking my life to save 20, 1,200 people's lives part. I felt deep regret about what I have hung on to without noticing the suffering of others. I could have done more. I could have paid more attention. So, will I pull my girls out of Lee Summit North and move? No, I honestly won't. I'm honestly saying I don't know how to make a difference. But I now am humbled to call myself an anti-racist. I'm listening to people who don't look just like me or live where I do. I acknowledge that I benefit from something that hurts other people. I'm examining my heart that so easily shushes the noticing of all in favor of readily embracing what works for me. I'm looking for ways to no longer be a blind consumer haven't we been taught over and over in this sanctuary that community is a picnic, not a restaurant? I feel my gaze widening, wanting to see like Jesus, who came for all, for the one sheep, for the least of these, for me. Jesus did not seek out the synagogue with the best rating or the broadest opportunities. He spoke in synagogues everywhere, from hills, from boats, under torture and anointing, to the rejected and the revered, to Lee Summit North Broncos and Raytown Blue Jays and Hogan Rams. My name is Lori Fisk, and this is my story.
0: Did I forget to mention, if you're going to be a witness revelation style. You have to ask yourself the hardest possible questions. You have to be completely open to God to answer the thing that you may not want to see at all. Maybe you won't find something hidden there the way Lori did. Maybe you will. Her story helped me to do some searching and find some things in the shadowy corners of my own soul. You have nothing to lose by doing it. You just become more like Jesus. It's a good risk to take. So let us be careful with what we're willing to do for wealth and what we're willing to do to hang on to it. Uh, Let us be aware of all sin and vice in the world that we wink at because it's uh, popular or trendy to do so. Um, Let us be careful how we use our influence in other nations. Let us beware how we justify violence and killing. And let us remember that we are all sinners and without God we will destroy ourselves. But when we appear before Christ, he will have grace for us. Provided we still know we need it. And that is the real, gener- that is the real danger of sin. Is that you get so far afield that you no longer know that you need Grace. That's the real danger of sin, that you no longer know you need Christ anymore. But Revelation gives us, through these pictures, an opportunity to pull the reins back today, a long time before that happens, I hope, and make a new path in a new way. I hope this word blesses us and guides us as a congregation and as a nation uh, back onto righteousness and peace. Amen. Sorry, one more, one more, since we ended on righteousness and peace. A question from last hour. How do we engage meaningfully and lovingly with folks who do, still defend uh, President Trump and his actions? Uh, well, you've answered your own question, meaningfully and lovingly. So start with love. Don't demonize people. We have, we have no right to say that someone is wicked because they interpret an event different than we do or they haven't seen what we've seen. Or that they feel completely different about it. And then meaningfully is to ask them, why do you feel that way? Where does it come from? Uh, explain to me the reasons why you think what went on is acceptable. And you will learn something that day about someone else's hurt. And you'll see similarities to yourself in things that you may ignore or justify. We're all justifying something. So meaningfully and lovingly, you've said it. Don't write people off. Don't attack people. And everything I'm talking about, I do not picture it happening online. I picture it happening online as like the laziest place to do what we're talking about. That is the, if you want to communicate to someone, I don't really care about you, but I want to look like I care about you. Engage with them. Try to do something like this online. It's super, super lazy and ineffective. Have lunch. Be in the church lobby. Have a, have a fire pit. Attend Pastor Dan's class. He and and Marta are are doing a book that exactly examines where does all these feelings of hurt and disenfranchisement and indignity come from that lead to things like that. So I'm gonna let him tell you more about that, but also uh, take their class and then engage in people with genuine interest and love in person. That's what I'd say to that. Amen. (laughs) Amen.